0: The story is told about a monastery in Portugal that was perched high on a 3,000-foot cliff and it was accessible only by a terrifying ride in a swaying basket. The basket is pulled with a single rope by several strong men perspiring under the strain of the fully loaded basket. And one American tourist who visited the site got nervous halfway up the cliff when he noticed that the rope was old and frayed. Hoping to relieve his fear, he asked, how often do you change the rope? The monk in charge replied, whenever it breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever worry about how safe you are? That might depend on where you are. Not many of us will ever choose to be pulled up a 3,000-foot cliff in a swaying basket. I know I wouldn't risk that. When you're at home, you're probably fairly safe. And you probably have several items in your home to guard your safety. You have smoke alarms, fire extinguishers, carbon monoxide detectors, locks and deadbolts on the doors. You might even have an alarm system. When you're in the car, you have seat belts, airbags, side airbags, smart airbags, all-weather tires, anti-lock brakes, anti-whiplash whiplash headrest, tire pressure warning. And now they have cars that brake on their own to help you avoid a crash. But regardless of where you are, what you are doing, we prefer to be safe, don't we? And common sense is probably the biggest safety device that we have. But how many of us ever give any thought whatsoever to safety concerns when it comes to our Christian walk, to our Christian life, the dangers involved in conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We tend to think that the dangers are limited unless we are a Christian in Mexico or Iran or Iraq or Sudan or any Muslim country where tens of thousands of Christians are being killed and, and persecuted, where Christian girls are kidnapped in Nigeria and sold as slaves and, and as wives. And, and by the way, that same thing is going on in Egypt as well. We just don't hear about it because they pick a Christian girl off here and there. But what about those things that would be destructive to our relationship with Christ? What about those things that would harm us spiritually or emotionally? So please turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3 again, the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians at verse 1. Paul tells the Philippians that he's repeating himself. He's writing the same things over again. And then he tells them why he would repeat himself. He says it's for their own safety. Verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. I'm telling you these things again to keep you in a safe place. That word translated safeguard was used in ancient Greek to refer to security. Security that guarded somebody or something from outside attack. The word was often used to refer to one's personal safety. Paul is saying, Philippians, your personal safety is at risk. That's why it's no trouble for me to write these things to you again, to warn you. Now, it's not surprising that Paul would write this to warn the Philippians who were facing severe persecution, who were suffering on account of their faith, who were losing their jobs, their livelihood, could potentially lose their lives, because they were Christians, and it's not surprising that Paul, who was in prison because he was preaching the gospel, would issue a warning to those who love him and could face the same kind of persecution he would face. What is surprising is what Paul warned them about and the severity of the warning. Paul encourages the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, and then his tone changes abruptly he launches into a scathing, blistering warning that echoes the seven wars that, woes that Jesus pronounced on the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, because you travel across land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you make one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. This is the same warning. Verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3, and if anybody was falling asleep when this letter was being read to the Philippian congregation, it was being read vocally, when they heard this part of Paul's letter read, they they would have woken up from whatever they were sleeping from and take notice. Verse 2, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. This is strong language. Paul is referring to a recurring problem in the churches that he had founded. There were many devout Jews who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but who also thought that Gentiles who accepted him as their Messiah had to be Jews first and primarily. And that in order to be a good Christian, a righteous Christian, you had to keep the Old Testament law. This meant that men had to be circumcised and take responsibility for observing the law of Moses. In other words, these Jews thought of Christianity as Judaism, primarily Judaism, with a little something extra that has to do with the Messiah. These Judaizers, those who wanted Christians to be Jews first, followed Paul every place he went to proclaim the gospel, every place he went to bring people to faith in Christ and establish a church, they followed him and came after him to undo the gospel that he had preached. And when these false preachers showed up in the churches of Galatia, Paul admonished the Galatians, You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? How were you saved, he's saying to them? Not by the works of the law, lest any man should boast, but by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift from God. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, of God. God saved you when you received Jesus Christ through faith it wasn't on account of your works it wasn't on account of anything you did it wasn't because you kept certain laws and regulations now having begun by the Spirit are you so moronic literally moros are you such a moron <laughs> to believe these guys that now you have to keep God's law in order to be perfected, in order to, for God to complete the good work he began in you, you've got to do all these good works, that the flesh that could not save you is going to be able to perfect you. How dumb is that, Paul says. You are foolish. You have fallen under a witch's spell. This is incredible. Paul doesn't see those who persecute us and kill us and throw us into prison as the biggest threat to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The biggest threat to living the Christian life is legalism, an external religion rather than what's of the heart. The biggest threat to the Christian life is, as Paul put it down in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 3, where he says, Having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Having a righteousness of my own is the biggest threat to you walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's a performance-based religion. It's all about how it looks. It's all about the externals of what you do and when you do them and all those kind of things where people tell you that it's, it's all up to you. It's what you can do or what you can't do. That your righteousness, that your perfection is based on your good works. This is what's going to bring your standing before God. And in warning the Philippians about this, Paul uses three words that begin with the letter K or kappa in the Greek. There's a remarkable poetic alliteration in Paul's stern warning. First of all, he refers to these false teachers as dogs, kuon, kuon in the Greek. And then evil workers, the word for evil is kakos, kakos, evil workers. And then katatome, false circumcision. Literally, it's mutilators. Kuon, caucus, katakome. Very poetic. (laughs) Beware the kuon, beware the caucus workers, beware the katatome. So first of all, Paul says, beware the dogs. He calls these false teachers dogs. In ancient days, they didn't keep dogs as pets. Most of the dogs were what we would call strays. They ran in packs. Most of them were wiry because they didn't get enough food, coyote-type dirty scavengers like the ones who ate Jezebel when she was thrown out of a, a window. Like those dogs, these Judaizers, that's what we call these guys, snapped at Paul's heels and followed him from place to place, barking their false doctrines like Satan, seeking who they might devour with their teaching. And secondly, Paul calls them evil workers. These men taught that the sinner was saved by faith plus good works. And then you're kept by good works. A lot of people believe that today. Oh, yeah, I'm saved by faith, but now they've got to keep themselves in their salvation somehow. They're kept by works, especially works of the law. But Paul says that their good works are really evil, evil works, because they're performed by the flesh. That is the old nature. They're not through and in the spirit of God. You see, a Christian's good works, those good things that we do are the result of our faith. They're not the basis for our faith. We do good works because we are saved, because we love the Lord, because we love other people. And good works also are not the basis for our Christian life. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is the basis for our Christian life. And this false spirit of legalism or works righteousness is, the main problem is that it forces its rightness on other people. Sometimes we think that we are so right that we force our rightness on others. Without showing any grace, without showing any mercy, we get so caught up in our own rules and regulations that we impose our rightness on other people. Chuck Swindoll wrote this in his really good book, The Grace Awakening. By far the best book he ever wrote of the hundred and some books he wrote, not the best seller, because there are too many people caught up in works. He said, several years ago, I was conversing with a man I greatly admire. He is a Christian leader in a position that carries with it heavy and extensive responsibilities. He said he was grieved on behalf of a missionary family he and his wife had known for years, The legalism they had encountered again and again on the mission field from fellow missionaries was so petty, so unbelievably small-minded, they had returned to the States and no longer planned to remain career missionaries. He said it was over a jar of peanut butter. I thought he was joking, to which he responded, no, it's no joke at all. I could hardly believe the story. The particular place where they were sent to serve the Lord did not have access to peanut butter. This particular family happened to enjoy peanut butter a great deal. Rather creatively, creatively, (laughs) they made arrangements with some of their friends in the States to send them some peanut butter every now and then so they could enjoy it with their meals. The problem is, They didn't know until they started receiving the supply of peanut butter that other missionaries considered it a mark of spirituality that you not have peanut butter with your meals. I suppose the line went something like this. We believe since we can't get peanut butter here, we should give it up for the cause of Christ or some such nonsense. A basis of spirituality was bearing the cross of living without peanut butter. This young family didn't buy into that line of thinking. Their family kept getting regular shipments of peanut butter. They didn't flaunt it, they just enjoyed it in the privacy of their own home. Pressures began to intensify. You would expect adult missionaries to be big enough to let others eat what they pleased, right? Wrong. The legalism was so petty, the pressure got so intense, and the exclusive treatment became so unfair, it finished them off spiritually. They finally had enough. Unable to continue against the mounting pressure, they packed it in and were soon homeward bound, disillusioned and probably a bit cynical. What we have here is a classic modern-day example of a group of squint-eyed legalists spying out and attacking another's liberty. Not even missionaries are exempted. And then thirdly, Paul warns, beware the false circumcision, katotomei. Last week, Joe asked me what the sermon theme was for this next Sunday, because he's going to be putting music together. And so I read him the, the scripture passage, and I said, you got any good false circumcision songs? <laughs> and of course he did, and I said, just go. with <laughs> what you think the Lord would, would lead you on this. But here Paul uses a pun on the word circumcision. The word translated circumcision here is literally a mutilation. You see, the Judaizers taught that circumcision was necessary or essential for salvation, but Paul is stating that circumcision of itself for religious purposes is only a mutilation. True circumcision, he's going to say, is a mark of being a Christian because it's of the heart. It's the circumcision of the heart where God cuts out those things that would prevent us from being what he wants us to be. It's a spiritual circumcision. It doesn't have to do with fleshly operations, and whether it's something external like circumcision or even baptism or the Lord's Supper or tithing or any other practice, these things cannot save a person from his or her sins. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. So what is the mark of a true Christian and what, what makes it so evil to say that it's something else, whether it's baptism, you got to be baptized to be saved or you got to be circumcised, let me illustrate it this way. I don't golf. I used to love golfing when I was in high school and college and did a little bit, and, but I'm not much of a golfing plan, fan. I, I just can't watch TV and hear these guys mumble while you're chasing a little ball <laughs> across the green and those kind of things. But I am told that Augusta National is a golf course every good golfer wants to play. And if you go into the dining room at Augusta National, you have to have a green jacket. Now, you might say, that's good, I have a green jacket. No, it's not just any green jacket. You have to have the green jacket, you know, with the little logo and stuff on it. Because the privileges are directly accruing to those who are worthy of the green jacket. So how do you get the green jacket? Two ways. You can win the Masters or you can buy a membership. Now, the membership waiting list is going to outlive my daughter's grandparents (laughs) and her grandparents and and probably their grandparents. And It's it's, kind of like Green Bay Packers. You get season tickets. There's a 60-year waiting list to get season tickets. So you can't buy the membership. It's just not going to happen. And your chances of winning the Masters, who here is going to win the Masters? You know? maybe the cute little baby i think mason could do that <laughs> he's the only one here that i think really has an opportunity to do that so what you know for sure is that you're not going into the dining room of the augusta national club golf club because the only way to go in there is with the green jacket at the marriage supper of the lamb in the book of revelation no one goes in without a white robe well you say well i have got to get me one of those can I buy it? No. Can I earn it? No. Then I'm in deep difficulty. Yes. Unless, unless another has done for your behalf what you cannot do for yourselves. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is why Paul is so concerned and would call those who would say that you can earn your robe, you can buy your robe. He calls them dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. Because they are so wrong that people's salvation in relationship to the Lord is at stake. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, that we are the true circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here Paul gives us very briefly three marks of a true Christian. The one who wears the robe of Christ righteousness, the true circumcision. First of all, the true Christian worships God in the spirit. Now, Jesus said you shall worship in spirit and in truth, but what Paul's talking about here is not so much what we do here on Sunday morning, but it's in direct contrast to the performance-based external religion of those who depend upon the flesh, those who are trying to buy or earn their own robe. In other words, you can live in the flesh or you can live in the spirit of God. And the word translated worship here, we've seen it before in Paul's letter to the Philippians, is translated spiritual service of worship over in Romans chapter 2, where we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spirit, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So he's talking about the practical ways of we serve and we go about living the Christian life in service to God, not just what we do on Sunday morning. Are we going to serve by the Spirit of God or are we going to do it in the flesh? Tony Evans, pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship of Dallas, Texas, gives us an illustration of this, what it means to live and serve according to the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he puts it this way. He says, on August 14, 2003, Lois and I were in New York preparing to return to Dallas when the lights went out. That's right, we were two of the 50 million of people affected by the largest electrical blackout in U.S. history. I'll never forget that day since our lives and plans were turned upside down. One of the many challenges that faced us that day was finding a place to stay since all flights had been canceled. We finally located a hotel that had, remaining, had a remaining room and we settled in for the evening. The problem was that because there was no power, there were no lights, no air conditioning, no TV, and worst of all, no warm food. When we got to our room, we opened the blinds, only to discover that the hotel across the street was full of lights. People were talking and eating and enjoying themselves. We decided we needed to cross over to see how this was possible. When we entered the hotel, the air was cool. TVs were on everywhere and people were in high spirits. It was a totally different atmosphere from where we were staying just a few yards away. Why was there such a major contrast? It was rather simple. Our hotel had no generator while the other hotel did. They possessed a power source that enabled them to transcend the darkness and it made all the difference in the world. Today, many are living in darkness and despair because they have never understood the unique life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. When his ministry is taught and clearly understood, it will bring light and life to those living in the darkest of circumstances. The true Christian lives and serves according to life-giving and light-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit, where there is light, where there is joy. And secondly, the true Christian glories in Jesus Christ Verse 3 again. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. People who depend upon religion and their good works are usually boasting about what they have done. Have you ever seen that in people? Now, the true Christian has nothing of which to boast. His or her boast is only in Christ. Uh, just for a moment, turn to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 18 a moment. Luke chapter 18 verse 9 because Jesus here gives us a parable that describes these two opposite attitudes of boasting in oneself and trusting in oneself or having nothing whatsoever to brag about where salvation is a gift of God where no one should boast. Luke chapter 18 beginning at verse 9. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. I take that literally when I read it. I think he's praying to himself. He's bragging to himself. God, I thank you because he's saying it out loud. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. The true Christian, Paul says, puts no confidence in the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and not ourselves, implied, and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, there's a popular philosophy that goes around today that says the Lord helps those who help themselves or pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. And it was also popular in Paul's day, just as it was just as wrong as it was now. You know, the Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh, about our own effort. And yet most people depend entirely upon the flesh to try to do what they think is going to please God. According to the Bible, the flesh only corrupts God's way on earth, Genesis 6:12. The flesh profits nothing as far as the spiritual life is concerned, John 6:63, 6, and it has nothing good in it, Romans 7:18. No wonder we should put no confidence in the flesh. A woman was arguing with her pastor about this matter of faith and works. She said, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat. One oar is faith and the other oar is works. If you use both, you get there. If you only use one, you go around in circles. And the pastor said, well, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration. Nobody is going to heaven in a (laughs) rowboat. There's only one good work that gets the sinner to heaven, and that's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what are the true dangers? And why does Paul use such stern warnings here and scathing words to describe those who would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ and and those who would want to convince us that we put our confidence in the flesh? We're going to see more about this next Sunday, but I want us to back up to the beginning of chapter 3 of Philippians, because I just kind of skimmed over that first part The first verse of Philippians chapter 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul writes the word finally, and then he goes on for two more chapters, mostly repeating himself. How many Sunday mornings have you heard that? (laughs) Where the pastor says, finally, or in conclusion, and then he goes on. More pastors, including Paul, have been the brunt of jokes because they said, finally, and then they go on for several more minutes. It's like the little boy who was sitting in church with his dad one Sunday morning. He said, Dad, what does it mean when the pastor takes his watch off and sits it on the pulpit? And his father said, nothing, son, absolutely nothing. Well, at least this time, I saved the finally till finally. And I have done this because I believe this is our application for this morning, because I believe that Paul gives us an indicator here, an indication, an indication when our safeguards are down. You know, they have Lost in Space on TV again, and I always hated that robot, that big ugly thing that would flap his arms and yell, danger, 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 when there was danger going. But this is the danger signal. Paul gives us the indicator that shows us when we are at risk, when we are at danger of putting our confidence in the flesh. It's a warning light. It's an alarm bell that warns us that the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilators have breached our minds, have breached our thinking, and that we are trying to live our lives in the flesh rather than by the Spirit of God. And it has to do with our Christian joy. The teaching of the legalists, the teaching of the false teachers, those who would push a performance-based religion, is destructive to the joy of genuine faith. Nothing steals a believer's joy more than legalism, of getting caught up in a performance-based religion and a system of works righteousness. Nothing is more destructive to our own joy than thinking it's up to me, that I have to get in there and I have to get it done and I've got to do it in my own strength. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 is often quoted in this regard. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's where our joy comes. That's where our strength comes from. It's not in what we can do or can't do. It's not what we try to do in our own strength. When we do try to do it in our own strength, there's going to be a notable lack of joy. That's the alarm bell. That's the robot going, danger, danger, danger. I hate that part, but you'll never forget what I said this morning because I used that stupid robot. The fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit, when we're walking in the Spirit, when we're living in the Spirit, when the Spirit is producing fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Can we push all those buttons and say, am I dependent upon the Spirit of God or am I dependent upon something else? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's clear but uh, harsh and direct, even scathing words this morning because it gives us a sense, an understanding of just how dangerous these kinds of things can be to our walk with you, our relationship with you, to the joy that we have in serving you and serving one another's. Father, when the alarm bell goes off because our joy level has been drained, Father, just help each one of us to turn to you, to get back to you, to be able to say, Lord, I just got way out in front of you and all this stuff, and and it's just not working, or Lord, I just don't sense any joy in this, Father. Is there something else you'd have me to do, or is there something you want to do through me? Father, we want to be sensitive to those things in our lives that would rob us and steal our joy. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.